Hey folks, before this episode of Podcast on Fire, I want to point you towards the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At shop.terracottadistribution.com you'll find all titles from labels such as 88 Films, Arrow, Video, Cineasia, Third Window, Eureka and of course Terracotta's own line of Hong Kong, Taiwanese, Korean and Japanese titles. Find them at shop distribution.com and Podcast on Fire Network listeners get 10% off at checkout using the code ETERNALROSE. That's capital E-T-E-R-N-A-L, capital R-O-S-E, Eternal Rose, all in one word. Go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Podcast on Fire on the Enigmatic Case and Seven Years Itch. Uh, that's a lineup for you. Johnny Toe makes his first and second film. He's behind both of these. Neither are called or are like the mission. So from 1980, we find a martial arts mystery film, The Enigmatic Case. And in 1987, writer, producer, star has Johnny Toe call action and cut for his. Uh, Marital Farce, Seven Years Itch, and that writer, producer, star is Raymond Wong. So it's as much his movie, in my view, as it is Johnny Toe's Seven Years Itch. We'll get into it. Uh, my name is Ken Bia with me to fill the gaps of some gaps of the early works of uh, this classic uh, Hong Kong filmmaker is Paul Fox. Hello, hello. I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> and just wondering, you know, after you've been a podcaster for seven years, do you get an itch to like go and podcast about something else? I don't think that's in, it's, it's terribly unhealthy, though. The, uh, like, like find new paths and not do the same thing. I, I like to think uh, that we've renewed our focus, even if it's um, n- not noticeable. But uh, it, it doesn't make me itch to sort of go like, I want, I want to do it with another podcast, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. So it's it's not. Uh, I'm not going out fooling with another podcast. Uh, that that didn't happen after um, after seven years. So. Let's get into it. These are two very different, but still, movies by Milky Way Images, Johnny Toe. Pre uh, a lot of things. I mean, he's he's gone through sort of uh, two images. One could say highly commercial filmmaker. Well, he started out as one type of filmmaker, then went into commercialism, then uh, had to start anew, I suppose, with Milky Way Image and work himself up to commercialism and his greatest acclaim. In his uh, f- filmmaking, uh, filmmaking path, uh, being uh, being one of the heads of Milky Way Image that gave us the mission and Mad Detective and uh, Love and a Diet and uh, Needing You and uh, all those uh, all those uh, things. Admittedly, I haven't followed him for a few years, but I think he he's not making movies yearly. That's for sure. So I'm not even sure he's uh, done a movie in the last one or two years. I mean, what was the last one you you think? Uh, I mean, he he he's got another detective movie coming. Or is that solely? Kafai, that's uh, doing a louching one uh, follow-up thingy. Yeah, his last movie was free. Yeah, three. He's got uh, uh, Septet, which is more of an anthology. 
um thing and, with and other people. election free now move to 2022 <laughs> it's always there move in, the goalpost the, uh, you know in in the nether world of film production <laughs> that's gonna star maybe but definitely not andy lao lewis ku lao ching wan francis mm, anthony wong nick chung sammy cheng everyone's in it it's not going to happen not uh not on mainland china's watch let's just say that <laughs> uh so yeah yeah, yeah free, I, i've seen free and that, uh, that's amazing um he, he's definitely slowed down and i suppose he can because now milko image uh, doesn't have that pressure on them to uh, deliver and survive because they have survived uh, i guess that was part of the run in the late 90s where they were trying to find a footing trying to find hits but making their own movies and eventually they found a blend of both and then mixed it with commercial comedies uh, and things like that so like in all honesty paul do you prefer the milky way image output uh when when it became uh, romantic and light like needing you wu yen love on a diet style or what's your uh, what's your milky way preference i'm i you know i'm definitely more in the waikafai camp of of stuff and yeah, i prefer those types of films over the more i mean i can appreciate you know the the more hard-boiled tri triad gangstery stuff but it's you know if, if i had to choose uh, i prefer the romantic comedy stuff much more yeah i haven't seen all of them um, i haven't seen help or wu yen and um yeah i haven't seen love on a diet either but um uh, oh my left eye sees ghosts so uh, you know that run of uh, films but uh, we'll get to it eventually maybe during the show as we plug gaps of uh, filmmakers including johnny toe but let's uh, let's get going uh, talking of beginnings uh, if you will so for all your podcast on fire network needs uh, including uh, the back catalog of podcast on fire the og show here on the podcast on fire network go to podcastonfire.com we have other shows on Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, category three rated cinema. Heck, yeah, even this week in Sleeves, which is our category three show, even covered, believe it or not, Paul, a Taiwanese art film. And, uh, and I'll set it up. Uh, there's a movie called Ming Ghost, starring Joey Wong. That was recut and uh, had added uh, nudity and violence for its Hong Kong version. That was severely uh, reduced in running time and. Uh, but uh, got some added uh, added flesh, rated category three, and then played in Hong Kong as Little Woman. So uh, it, we covered both the very long Taiwanese art film with Joey Wong, and then its cheapened category three version. Uh, they didn't like make it so that Joey Wong has uh, softcore sex scenes or anything like that. Uh, other actors took care of that, but. Uh, that was an angle in uh, for this week in Slee. So that's in the the archive and, and uh, as part of the back catalog of uh, of that show. Uh, we uh, have social media presences on uh, Facebook and Twitter, on Instagram. So follow the links and check out our uh, discussion group and our Twitter presence. And uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, stream us on Stitcher Radio and Spotify, and uh, wherever you get podcasts. Really. So I think yeah, that'll, that'll do, and uh, we'll uh, we're gonna take a music break, and then talk of Johnny Toe's directorial debut from 1980 called The Enigmatic Case. So sit tight, and we'll be right back.
And welcome back. First uh, movie of this episode. Uh, two Johnny Toe movies. It's very first, uh, too, uh, but they're, they're several years apart. Uh, the Enigmatic Case from 1980. And plot from the Hong Kong movie database goes as follows. Damien Lau stars as swordsman Lu Chien Kwan, who sets out to clear his name after being accused of stealing a bunch of gold and killing his three colleague bandits to take their share. Lu Tian Kuan's task is uh, made more difficult by the fact he's got a particularly dogged police chief on his tail, along with a bunch more bandits uh, that want to find out where he's hidden the gold. It's made somewhat more pleasant by Cherry Chung's Yu Pei Pei, whom he becomes entangled with along the way. As we talked of, there was a Johnny Toe before Milky Way image and the mission election, and some, you know, for a while, uh, you and I have followed Hong Kong cinema for. For a while, for for a while, Johnny Toe to us was Johnny Toe of the heroic trio, and just as my foot and the fun, the luck, and the tycoon, uh, we we could sort of follow uh, that uh, for a little bit, and then see the change into the Milky Way image, Johnny Toe. Uh, for a while, therefore, he was a successful commercial uh, filmmaker across uh, some of these movies, especially Just as My Foot, this one of those blockbuster movies that we can thank certainly Stephen Chow and, and Anita Moy for for its box office, uh, but, but yeah, he was a reliable name to have have there. But when he formed Milky Way Image with uh, Y Kafai, that meant he had to build up his name again, his brand to a degree, uh, anew again. So that was a challenge and uh, certainly a story we've told here on the Podcast Network, but um, it's, a, it's a fascinating restart. But his debut, The Enigmatic Case, doesn't resemble either of those versions of Johnny Toe, for, for my money's worth. Maybe Paul has picked up on some similarities to, uh, to latter works, but regardless, the uh, case was uh, released in June of 1980 when Johnny Toe was 25 years old. And the previous decade had seen the man, uh, the young man, work at TVB, the TV arm of Shaw Brothers, starting low uh, on the totem pole as a messenger boy, but he worked himself up through the ranks uh, into a maker, starting in 1973. So he started to gather credits as executive producer and director for TV shows, and uh, his uh, wiki states that he shot his first film in 1978, which may, just may, suggest, I can't confirm it, that the enigmatic case was in production as early as 1978, but not released until the summer of 1980. Pure speculation, but that's what the wiki says. And uh, uh, Johnny didn't abandon TV though after making that movie, and his next film wasn't uh, made until uh, uh, the mid 80s or the latter half of the 80s. And uh, he was one of the directors on the 1983 TV series The Legend of the Condor Heroes based on the Louis uh, Cha martial arts novel. Is that 1983 TV series one of the high points of uh, Louis Cha uh, adaptations uh, for you, or do you like some of the latter ones better? No, I think that that's, uh, that's a good series, and I think it leads into the the uh, sequel series, uh, Return of the Condor Heroes, which stars uh, Andy Lau. After that, you get um, uh, Heaven Sword Dragon Saber, starring uh, Tony, a very young Tony Lau Chuai. And according to IMDb, uh, Johnny Toe wasn't a recurring director on The Legend of the Condor Heroes, though. Uh, they listed as, uh, uh, him uh, directing one episode from the 59-episode uh, series. Is it easy to get, get through those runs? So, uh, does Hong Kong TV work the half-hour TV format when it comes to Wuxia, or that differs? 
No, those are those are uh, longer episodes, and um, that those series uh, are available out there with English subtitles. You can find them in box sets. They're not too pricey. Um, they're still around what you would pick them up for retail um, back when they were on sale on the store shelves. You know, the quality is such, you know, because it's the 80s, it's TV. It has that sort of video soap opera set look. It, it's not as polished as, say, you know, Shaw Brothers films from the 70s. And that's not going to appeal to everybody. But for anybody who can just kind of look beyond that and look into the, sort of the entertainment value of the storytelling, it, it they're they're very entertaining for the, for the period and on a, on a like 40 45 minute um episodes yeah. uh, mm-hmm. therefore so so it's a little bit of an of an investment if you go into a 59 episode uh, series but uh, these are big uh, stories to tell and obviously not everything was in the legend of the condor heroes as paul said it continued on Johnny Toe worked more consistently on the 1982 TV series The Wild Bunch, however, and by the looks of it, it was a martial arts or wuxia series uh, starring Felix Wong and Ken Tong. Were you familiar at all with uh, with that by name, at the very least, The Wild Bunch? I'd heard of it, but I've never seen it. Yet. Yeah. So I tell all that because it's a little leading up, uh, coming uh, coming leading up to his uh, motion picture debut, coming out of his motion picture debut, and as for the. Um, a performance of the enigmatic case at the box office said it had a two-week run where it earned 1.2 million hong kong dollars which couldn't match that year's big jackie chan film for instance the young master that earned 11 million hong kong dollars at the box office uh, summer hongs horror kung fu hybrid encounter of the spooky kind earned 5.6 million a new wave director patrick tam's stab at wuxia in the form of the sword earned 2.6 million and the gritty backwards Horror flick The Beasts earned 2.2 million, so not a top hit, but it, he got some uh, uh, some bumps uh, on uh, seats uh, there, making this um, uh, certainly not conventional martial arts um, film. So um, let's uh, lead into it. And as for my short opinion, it's a uh, it's a slow, at- fairly atmospheric story. It's about restoring honor, uh, set in a very bleak world. Where that goal of uh, being good, restoring honor, will likely come with a price. It's easily followed in terms of uh, the mystery story, has a somewhat affecting journey for Damien Lau's character, and uh, within the gritty look, I think Johnny Toe sometimes actually genuinely affects and surprises to a solid degree. Yeah, it's it's uh, it looks pretty professional for a debut work and. The chores for the action directors are handed out only at sparse times, um, so it's not a wall-to-wall action film, uh, but uh, you could slot it somewhat into a martial arts genre, I suppose. Uh, 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 but it's not stylized martial arts, It's uh, the focus is on struggle and violence, and some of it is rather tough on the senses. So I think I liked it more initially, it's still solid and um, unexpectedly sharp, but... Uh, uh, not a um, not not as much of a hidden gem as when I first watched it, but uh, very solid nonetheless. Uh, so, uh, what did you think of the enigmatic case? Um, was this first first time viewing for you? First time viewing, um, and it's one of those that's you know kind of been on the radar, but it's because of availability, which we'll talk about later. It's been something that's eluded me over the years, so it was nice to finally get a chance to see it. For me, I do think that it definitely has the marks of a kind of a new director in places and it's um i mean it's interesting here it's it's if you're a cherry chung completionist i mean this is one you've got to watch because it's it's her first film 
Um, and it's interesting to see kind of how she develops from this to roles that she'd be become more famous for later on. On the whole, I think it's it's not a very strong film. I think it's got some interesting elements, but it feels very piecemeal at times. It feels like it's trying trying to do um, different things. The opening is very interesting in that it's different from a lot of typical film openings because it's basically a music video. And if you're not familiar with a lot of sort of TVB dramas, basically that's how all TVB dramas start is with, <laughs> but, you know, a, but a now in now in widescreen and sort of a montage of scenes from things that happen in the show, sometimes spoilery things, you know, so it, 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 if it's not done well. And so here they have that they have this kind of montage with this music playing that's kind of showing you the Damien Lau character. But you come to realize later that, okay, this is a time period that's a little bit different from the time period that you're going through in the main narrative. So I think that part is kind of interesting, but um, it, it's also a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit of a misdirect at first. You've seen Patrick Tams for Sword at one point, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So, which, to me, going by memory, it's a very short movie, so it doesn't seem like it has a lot of con content and uh, nuance. But uh, I remember it uh, changing the Wuxia narrative to some degree where it um, it was on with different trains of thoughts. It uh, tried to, and really, for me, deconstructed the Swordsman myth because uh, the, the the pursuit of power, you know, being, being the best in the martial world... Uh, was kind of futile as it turned out it was not all that it was cracked up to be and uh, so from the same year we we had a, a like a different take on sword play and martial arts so can you sense here that uh, someone new is trying to uh, go against the flow a little bit uh, it's not your typical martial art film and it's not your typical convoluted uh, grand colorful uh, wuxia film yeah i do think that they were trying to present a different take there, there are a couple films that I would compare this to, and in fact, two of them are Zoe Hark films. First being The Blade, um, and then also one we've already talked about, which is uh, Butterfly Murders, because it's more of a mystery per se than than sort of a martial arts film, and also a, a mainland China film called uh, Sword of Double Flag Town. Oh yeah, love that film. Love that film. If you look at the way they're taking the the wuxia martial arts genre here, and they're they're portraying it as kind of grittier dirtier, far less heroic as and and far less colorful as you would see in, in you know, the Shaw stuff from the 70s. I, I do feel a strong attempt at that here. And I think it's successful in, in many ways. That I've always responded to well, that it's um, a little bit uh, down and dirty and it certainly is not responding to Kung Fu comedy, obviously, uh, nor established uh, Wuxia. You know, it's not a complex, uh, colorful, uh, smoky Choyun film or anything like that so uh, it's still effective going against the grain even though I, I found it to be a little bit spotty in terms of being uh, affecting on a story story level character level and uh, all of that speaking of the beginning by the, way, uh, by the way if we look at the sounds of it uh, the, I was expecting the soundtrack to break out into the normal oxygen 
part two audio <laughs> well, theft. Almost. <laughs> almost, but it's either an emulation or from something else, or maybe it's something else from, from uh, Jean-Michel Jarry. And then we lead into almost this Roman Tam style theme song we've heard in the likes of Lost or of Chivalry and even the Butterfly Murders. Perhaps it is Roman Tam, but for, for some reason, I don't know anything about Roman Tam, but I know enough to sort of recognize that voice. It's a very uh, grand grand voice for 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 these types of uh, movie themes as those images of possibly longing of uh, of Cherry Chung uh, from Damien Lau and there's violence and there's fire and uh, we get these flashes and then we get that grand uh, that grand sounding uh, theme song if you will so um uh, but yeah it, it, it's sort of uh, amusing that totes roman time i know that's roman time listening to lost Horror for chivalry can't say i know anything about his life or his musical career or anything it's just something that i sort of instinctively know those types of uh, almost tragic themes by sound only uh, makes for good uh, uh, to, to accompany movies like Lost Horror for Chivalry and even Butterfly Murders. Uh, the Roman Tam sort of soundscape is um, is uh, is a good setup for for mood. So, um, do you have any take if that is Roman Tam or not, or that to me, to you that didn't sound like him? It could be. I didn't didn't check into that because I was too distracted by the complete ripoff of sound themes from James Bond soundtrack, uh, You Only Live Twice. <laughs> In particular, a riff um, called uh, Fight at Kobe Dock, which they use in two places in the film uh, in these sort of uh, dark KV sequences. And I was just like, really? Are they going to get away with this? And apparently they did. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons why it hasn't gotten a re-release yet, but uh, it was very uh, striking to me to hear that. And then there's also a more traditional James Bond theme they use at one place, um, very briefly. But uh, yeah, that uh, was very kind of like ringing a bell for me. I think I heard a snippet from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Not uh, wah, 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 but uh, rather some of the other compositions, like when Clint Eastwood and uh, Eli Wallach uh, walk into this big uh, battlefield before they um, before they blow up the bridge, I think, or even post the blowing up the bridge, they find a soldier that's dying. So it's that sort of melancholic theme. I think I spotted it, uh, but sometimes everything sounds like Morricone and it's really hard to place which Leone film it's from <laughs> sometimes, you know, uh, unless it's really obvious. Uh, but, um, but, but yeah, but it, it makes for a good soundscape, though. Uh, even, even when you pull James Bond into the mix uh, and even when you pull... Uh, uh, electronic music like uh, music like uh, Oxygen into these um, movies, but it was always part two of Oxygen that they pulled into, you know, Snake and Eagle Shadow, and uh, there's even a Taiwanese horror movie with Alan Tam where it plays over the opening credits, uh, and uh, boy, it worked for me uh, every time, you know. And and you, you know, speaking of that, as a little side note, you you sometimes hear that oh, it's impossible to release um, certain movies because. Uh, of the music they used. But yet, we, we have examples of things being released without replacing copyrighted music. Either they've settled, or there's still not enough eyes on product that should react to the, the unauthorized usage of uh, music. Like, uh, I read some discussion about Magnificent Bodyguards, the Jackie Chan 3D film, uh, which has that in, in droves, apparently. And that has had 
somewhat recent releases on both DVD and um, maybe a Blu-ray release of sorts. And no one is saying no to that. So maybe a future one that is actually in 3D will happen and they will be able to get away with it. Now, there are examples of when artists said no. If you remember the movie Master of the Flying Guillotine, they use uh, some music from the German sort of a it sounds like punk music uh, but it's a german band called Neu, and they finally after a couple of releases let's say uh, in the new millennium said no no and no and no if you want to release our music is out and therefore we had new releases with replaced music and during the right to do so uh, like we require compensation or it's out and in this case uh, they did replace it. And it's a shame because the way they actually placed the music in Master of the Fly Guillotine, I think it's during the opening credits, it's kick-ass. It works so much to have uh, like a pumping almost punk rock uh, soundtrack uh, across uh, Jimmy Wang Yu type of images. So um, uh, maybe uh, that will uh, be more of a problem as uh, the years go by that these releases uh, will run into copyright troubles. But uh, at this time, it seems like most of it is getting through. Anyway, we have evidence of the action style here um, in the beginning. It's brief, somewhat gritty in terms of sword fighting. Uh, there's a scene at the river, and we had this rugged, scarred hero. So it's no immaculate hero. It's no no immaculate T-Long style hero. And the environments are run down as well. And uh, it, it's all, of course, complemented by nighttime photography. But it's still... Uh, that that makes it more atmospheric in in enigmatic case, but you you still have an evidence of the vibe being grounded, earthy, and uh, you know characters with hats casting shadows over their faces, and there's characters in shadows. And I'm not saying this is revolutionary filming techniques or anything, but um, it's still not very connected to trends that were hot at the time of uh, making this, either in '78 or. 80. So I, I can see that Johnny Toe is going for a vibe and an atmosphere that sometimes you, you really don't know if you could place this in a fantastical universe, meaning, oh, it's it's in the Wuxia world, or if it's more realistic, you know, it's it never, you know, I would lean a little bit more towards uh, Wuxia, but it has its uh, foot in call it kung fu realism for, for lack of a better term and uh, I, I i didn't mind that that the, this world felt a little bit more grounded if you will so um anything uh you want to say about that uh about how the world is portrayed you you mentioned the blade and the blade played favorably to you so is this uh, a welcome sight and so uh, like welcome sights and sounds for the kung fu wuxia film for you well i do tend to like to lean more towards the the fantasy and the fantastic, um, especially more like, uh, say, zoo warriors from the Magic Mountain and and um, stuff that really push it pushes hard into into the effects into the fantasy of it all. Um, but I do appreciate a lot of what they were doing here, especially in terms of the locales, um, because they're they're shooting in actual villages, um, and I'm I'm thinking that I couldn't I. The, the the copy we had did not have um, an credits at the end, so I couldn't really read through to see like uh, where where they actually filmed that and, and things of this nature. What 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 would you bet be China or Taiwan for? Yeah, I, I'm thinking it had to be either Taiwan or China um, because the villages they were shooting at were too big and wide open to be um, Hong Kong. You know, they had a couple other places where there were just really large casts of extras. They have like this. Um, 
celebration where they're putting lanterns out on the water and there's like, a, you know, the, this fortune celebration and there's this huge, you know, cast of extras there. Um, and this is, you know, not something that's very typical for, say, the wuxia martial arts films of, of the 70s, which were usually confined to, you know, sets on the stage and, and they weren't shooting out sort of in the open usually, unless it was like a big battle sequence between uh, a couple opposing armies. So I really liked how they were kind of trying to open the aesthetics of it in, in that way. But it doesn't, it's it's not one that looks pretty. So if you're somebody who likes sort of the pretty, flowing, colorful looks of the martial arts films of the 70s, that's not here. Um, so this this aesthetic may not appeal to you. But it was something different that they were trying, that they were pushing, and it sets itself out in doing so. Yeah, it's a world played by verbally mostly they talk about the world is played by storm uh, storm and rain and drought even you know so and the characters are going to stone town there's no, no like travel traveling to the golden pavilion or anything grand you know uh, so they it's on it's almost like uh, all locations are kind of ugly and hard and uh, and dirty Walking through interior caves is really uh, like uh, atmospheric, and uh, there is some good location work here. Uh, walking in fields and below mountains to sort of boost the widescreen, but uh, but as you said, it's not meant to be pretty. Yes, the transfer we have is not the most colorful, but I think it's definitely suitable for um, for the type of story and the type of design that Johnny Toe is putting forth here, including the design of uh, Damien Lau as our lead here. Now he's an actor I've always liked. Um, in and out of martial heroes role, uh, roles because uh, he's absolutely fine in uh, Lost Horror for Chivalry and Duel to the Death but I was always more impressed with his uh, transition to modern roles whether uh, School on Fire even Heroic Tree or I think he looks good uh, playing um, Anita Moy's husband so he, he's always been a very reliable uh, uh, actual proper actor for these things and uh, this may not be reference material but but I think uh, there's a there's decent charisma and and the design he receives with with the hood and the scar is something that uh, carries me uh, carries me nicely so uh, it's a good uh, choice for the the sort of rugged hero of it all uh, even if uh, not all fairly affecting for you perhaps but uh, always enjoyed Damien so I bet you've seen him on uh, various TV roles in a variety of uh, uh, roles as well whether modern or martial heroes so uh, but, but yeah is, uh, is it an actor you um, you can get on board with I mean he's okay he's never been a big draw for me um, I didn't really feel a lot of chemistry between him and, and Cherry in this role and uh, I thought he was you know he was fine as sort of the, the guy on the run and I would have liked maybe a chance uh, to have him in more scenes with her um get having you know letting them get to know each other a bit better and and build more of a rapport than they have although there's a thing that happens later that i think is kind of shocking and and again trying to push away from the standard tropes of the genre had they given me more of of them together, that thing would have had more impact i wouldn't say yeah i I'll probably agree with uh, that their connection that there is they're they're certainly not um getting on with each other initially and then warm to each other a little bit across the movie that that is a bit spotty for me as well so the climax of the story that's 
you know, as shocking as it is, uh, is uh, not uh, this uh, hard smack and uh, slam dunk or anything emotionally, but. Um, and and she she sometimes seems to be uh, directed in a TV manner. It's very um, very emotional and distraught and melodramatic, rather than which I suppose could be a contrast to Damien Lau's more silent character. But uh, she's uh, she's young, she, she's exceptional, uh, and she has an exceptional career. But the the direction of her is uh, leans a little bit towards um, you know Johnny's. Uh, TV directing experience here, so uh, she gets a little, uh, you know, I wouldn't say whiny, but uh, there, there is uh, some emotional highs and lows that uh, goes a little bit too uh, too uh, far off the reservations uh, for uh, for me. But um, still a, a decently um, professional package. You know, you have those har- decently harrowing flashbacks to a, a fire of sorts. We see characters that are bound by uh, by rope possibly killed and we don't know who those characters are so th- there is a building mystery obviously the restoring of honor as we talked about and revenge but uh, within the professional uh, package uh, that, that i think it is it, it becomes uh, a little bit different to to an interesting degree i mean for new audiences so <laughs> like i wouldn't say that this is this is very eventful and uh, as we said, it's not the most refined debut, but clearly there is some cinematic train of thoughts and narrative choices being made here to involve an audience. I don't think Johnny would say in retrospect, oh yeah, I was doing something new that no one else was doing. I'm sure he would say, like we talked with uh, Choi Hak and uh, him and the fellow and, uh, fellow New Wave uh, uh, director Anne Hoy, uh, was to- they, they were talking that um, we're not doing anything new. No, it's traditional stuff, and uh, so we're we're uh, we, we can't be viewed as uh, originators of anything, really. So, so I'm sure Johnny is, uh, could look back on this and say, "Well, it's it's like most movies. I'm not doing anything new here," and uh, that's uh, that's pretty pretty much uh, what I agree on. Also, for for the action, uh, I appreciated that it was uh, grounded. It's uh, forceful. It's violent. It's pretty gritty the little action that we do get there's no style or techniques there's no grand weapons here uh, Damien Lau I think carries merely a knife you know or a small <laughs> small sword so the, the, this is not a fantastical world or a kung fu world where these characters bust out three section stars or big swords or anything so it um, it's stripped off um, some of the uh, kung fu lore which uh, I, I still find uh, um, interesting. Uh, not everything needs to be like weaponry out of legendary weapons of China. You know what I mean? Like it could be that characters simply do arm themselves with whatever they have. And it can still be a kung fu world of sorts. Um, this doesn't seem like martial heroes necessarily because they, they it doesn't seem like the whole movie identifies them as martial heroes across the board. And here is their grand technique or weapon. So is that compelling to you? Again, I tend to prefer the more kind of flashy and and fancy, fantastical kind of uh, storytelling as opposed to this, which, you know, tries to get a bit down in the weeds with the darkness, the grittiness, the the, the realness of, you know, a guy on the run. You, you know, you know, I forgot to ask, like, what, uh, was the blade therefore not uh, a positive experience for you? Yeah, the first time I saw the blade, I was very disappointed <laughs> because I went in thinking Keep your camera still, you know, yeah, this is, yeah, this is going to be, uh, you know, this is going to be some 
uh, fantastical wuxia fantasy storytelling. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? You know, why, why is this so down and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, in your face and, and, and so, so much more real than something like zoo. And, uh, so it's taken me a while for my appreciation level to gain for the blade, though I do appreciate it. And I appreciate this film too. It's just, it's not at the top of my kind of favorite things that I'm drawn to, I would say. Yeah, and uh, as I said, the, the action isn't um, its main uh, drive and focus. There are a couple of sequences, you know, the bamboo forest ambush uh, is in, in here. And it, I guess it evokes enough of a touch of Zen, because whenever you say, put something in a bamboo forest, you're going to go to King Who, uh, even though they're not uh, flying here or anything like that. So, um, so uh, but they do uh, pay homage, to, I suppose, uh, to something that's... Always going to be in martial arts uh, tradition, the, the bamboo forest setting. Even though I'm sure it, we had tons of movies before A Touch of Zen that did that, but A Touch of Zen is the one that made you go whoa there uh, in the middle of that three-hour movie and uh, the flying that went on, uh, and uh, for good reason because uh, A Touch of Zen is um, is a favorite of mine. So um, they do they do have a couple impressive set pieces though. There's a there's a scene on a river with a very kind of rickety raft. That has three characters on it, and one character is actually like has to lie down because that character is supposedly passed out. And they're going down these rapids. It doesn't look like the stunt people are tied down at all or secured at all. They're just kind of on this rickety raft. I spotted some it. of the actors on that raft in, in certain shots, and it didn't look and it didn't look pleasant at all. It, it it did not look pleasant, it did not look fun, but it was like wow, they really went for it in in that scene, and that was impressive. Yeah, you wonder just like hold on for dear life, and uh, the 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 current will stop you naturally somewhere down the line. So we'll we'll be there as soon as uh, as soon as you're not uh, not dead. So have fun going down the raft. But but yeah, it, uh, it made it uh, feel, I suppose, and very very realistic. And even the fight preceding the the raft uh, taking off is you know as they jump back and forth, and they 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 obviously submerge. A little bit of the raft by you know jumping and moving about so um it adds a little bit of earthy grounded uh, even realistic uh, feeling and uh, and all of that then and uh, i don't know for, for damien as well uh, you, you get some insights into the the character of lucian kwan and uh, that for some reason he commands respect with some some of the robbers think he's someone to respect uh, like uh, that's a life he left behind and he can't escape that suspicion therefore despite clearly not involving himself and I, i'm not ter- terribly sure if um, it's uh, undercooked or not uh, in all honesty i think it's a little bit undercooked a little bit too uh, non-verbal his um, character background but um, he, he's not fairly anti-heroic necessarily but um uh, I was probably wishing for a little bit more clarity uh, other than uh, clearing his name, which is the main plot for us, I suppose. But uh, still, I, I do like Damien. He's, he stays true to the mood of the film. And uh, as I said, Cherry gets some stock direction when it comes to emotion and, emotion and dealing with her uh, loss. Um, but uh, it's, it's Cherry, and uh, she's incredibly young here and uh, is uh, getting going. And uh, this is a sort of a... The OG face of um, her um, acting career that would uh, definitely get better in a heartbeat. Like a year or two after this, you would have story of Vuviet and uh, 
a stint at Shaw Brothers in some rather some rather sexy roles even. So um, and then Autumn's Tale and Zodiac Killers and then she was done. <laughs> you know, one of those that they nap. That's uh, this is good enough and life uh, is uh, looming, marriage is looming and uh, that's uh, that's me done. So can't complain when it's that good that ca- that career. But um, you sometimes wish that. Uh, you could see uh, you could see more in um, in a more modern Hong Kong cinema and see what she could uh, do with her uh, dramatic experience. But um, alas, no, she she has her life uh, outside of cinema, so we'll just have to deal with it, I suppose. So. All right, let me let me burst your bubble for a moment. Um, I, I'm 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 sad to do this, but unfortunately, the theme song I've done a little digging here is not uh, Roman Tam. I, I I had a feeling it was wasn't, uh, but uh, it it uh, is esque Tam esque, I suppose. Tam esque. It is by a singer named named uh, Michael Kwan uh, Kwan Chinkit, who was pretty I guess pretty prevalent during this era, and maybe he sounds he has a voice similar to Roman Tam's. He did a lot of TV drama work in the late seventies, and uh, yeah, I scrolled through just to double check. It, the the theme song is on YouTube um, under him and also in the credits. It's hard for me to read because they're the kind of these uh, fancy Chinese calligraphy credits in red. But I did find his his Chinese name there in the credits, so it is him. And no credit to John Barry anywhere, right? <laughs> yes, no, no. <laughs> like you credit that guy, but John Barry no, because we stole the LP from the composer's uh, crate at home. Um, some further final notes. Uh, we have some classic tropes here of a masked uh, fighter that will be revealed, and his partic- participation in the mystery will be revealed. So he's uh, hitting on some tropes, uh, young Johnny Toe. And um, I do like the fight scene with, uh, I don't want to spoil too much. It, it, this movie is not easy to get a hold of, but I'm still not going to spoil anything. Uh, it, there, there's a fight scene with um, a character closely connected to Sherry Chung's character that fights with Damien Lau. And um, I do like some of the rather, I don't know, uh, downbeat choices. It's one of those unavoidable fights. Like, they have no alternative, even though they're very resistant to possibly shed someone's blood. You know, uh, there's dialogue in the subtitles about, uh, I have no alternative, this is duty, this is loyalty, I'm in too deep, Uh, you're in too deep with your sins. And through blood is how you pay back debt. And that was a sort of scattered, but overall solid as the movie was uh, I, I thought those uh, those choices were, were somewhat felt and nicely mature um, and obviously towards the end we got some very harrowing cold choices um, amidst the sword fighting with that uh, built in aggression and uh, if anything Paul if you can sort of like find anything that corresponds to what Johnny Toe would do later in his films I would say that he shows a knack for depicting harrowing deaths here and that would turn up later and i can't even say which movies to be honest but uh, some some of the milky way movies they um they depicted uh, deaths of main characters in a very um harrowing way so i think he has a knack for that so that's the only like i can draw a line from that to that i know it's far-fetched but uh, it's so different from the other movies but uh, he's sort of a pessimistic uh, view on how to deal with main characters i suppose um ended up in some movies uh, later on you know so uh w- would you be able to take anything in the enigmatic enigmatic case and say yeah that will turn up later to some degree um yeah i mean i, I there are definitely some elements here too um that i think uh, carry through also but i think like you were saying there are things here that 
we see in earlier films, and I, I don't want to give it, give anything away, um, but we see in earlier films that we could say, well, that's kind of just borrowed from that, right? Um, as for somebody who's a new director, and again, it's it's hard to say when you're a new director on the scene, how much power do you really have as a director versus the producers or the screenwriter who may ha- have more clout than you on your first film? And uh, this is something that I think uh, a discussion we'll get into when we talk about the next film in just a minute. And how much of it is you just kind of going along because you're so happy to be there, you know, in, in that role for the very first time and listening to the people around you and and taking in what they have to say and going with what they have to say rather than pushing forward your own vision. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but, you know, the tendency, I think, for a new director is going to be that you're much more malleable to outside influence of the producers, of the writers, uh, or even the actors, because I think, you know, um, Damien Lau himself was listed as, you know, one of the planners on this film. How much of that influence is going to carry over into the decisions made, as opposed to later when you're like the Johnny Toe of today, and it's, you know, <laughs> what you say goes, basically, yeah. you know. So it's the big boss. This is, this is a case where I think there's a lot here that you can think about and ponder about you know, what is really coming from Johnny Toe himself as the director and, and what is really just kind of going from the cinematic forces that be for him as a new director. Hmm, that's for sure. That's well said. Uh, I don't have any other notes, so I'm going to leave it uh, to you if you want to mention uh, anything else from the film that you picked up on and wanted to share any more, any more uh, score uh, music theft that you picked up on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, music for theft aside, I mean, this is an interesting piece to to follow, especially, again, if you're a Cherry Chung completionist, it's one that you want to see. And um, despite all some of my nitpick grievances about it, it's it's still a very solid film for the era. Um, and it's one, if you can come across that, you, you I, I do recommend you watch it um, because it's something that stands out as different from a lot of what has come before and what would come later. It's it's very kind of like a uh, kind of like a film in, in flux, if you will, for where this genre would go in just a few short years in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, indeed. And uh, as for availability, this is not very available. And, and, and it's not my intention to pick movies that I have and you don't uh, because I can't do anything about it. We, we can talk about a movie in 2018 that has a widely available DVD or Blu release that is gone two years later. You know, so this has a very much older DVD release, so, so I'm, I'm not surprised that it's gone. But uh, it was a Maya title, and they released it on a VCD and DVD and a letterbox transfer. That uh, is pretty devoid of colors, but I think that suits it. Um, otherwise, very clear, decent subtitles. And that's all she wrote, it seems like, in terms of home video appearances. Maybe a VHS back in the day, but... Uh, the the VCD and and DVD from Maya that, that's all we had and even the VCD I don't think had subtitles so there is that and sometimes when you do searching on Google that reveals like screen captures from an online HD version so you see like okay yeah it, it is out there maybe we'll get it on disc maybe not nothing of the kind for enigmatic case uh, so whether Maya still has it has prepared an uh, an HD version. I can't say, but um, the DVD is only out there secondhand going for way, way too much. We're talking uh, free figures. Th- those free figures were not pretty. 
necessarily, you know, between 100 and 300, maybe more. And, and I don't like that. I don't like that at all. That's what they do. And uh, as I said, the VCD you, you could find on eBay, but reportedly it has no English subtitles, not even sure it's letterbox diver. And this is a uh, 2.3, 5 to 1 framed film. So it has um, scope and, um, and vistas to show off, um, even though it's a rugged, rugged film. But yeah, uh, I managed to get it early in the day. So uh, that's um, how I um, have been able to watch it throughout the years. So, uh, But yeah, we are going to take a music break and fast forward six, uh, seven years, uh, rather, to Johnny Toe's second film yeah he stuck to tv i suppose and uh, hung around the film industry but uh, didn't do anything until 1987 when um when yeah it's seven years between the movies and after seven years he made seven years itch so he had an itch of sorts and uh, it resulted in a movie called seven years itch and uh, it's not a martial arts film believe it or not with that name but we are going into the commercial side of uh, Johnny Toe's filmmaking that uh, we, for instance, have covered in... Um, uh, not not you and I. It was me and Kevin Ma that talked about the Thunderluck and the Tycoon. We excluded you from that uh, discussion. Like, uh, <laughs> Such a good movie. Yeah, you 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 sit there with Coming to America and Thunderluck and the Tycoon on their own, and we're, we're, we're going to sit there and talk uh, about uh, uh, the Coming to America remake without you. But, uh, but yeah, Seven Years H is, uh, anyway... Closer to uh, this run of uh, commercial romantic comedies, Chinese New Year comedy style films and profitable films that uh, he would um, have brewing for a number of years. So uh, where it's the sort of um, first cinematic in identity, if you do exclude uh, enigmatic case from it all, it's sort of first uh, cinematic identity uh, being a commercial uh, filmmaker, 70 years each. But as we will discuss, how much is Johnny Toe? How much is uh, this Raymond Wong's? film so we'll uh, talk about that uh, after the break Welcome back, listeners, and uh, the second Johnny Toe movie in our attempt to plug some gaps in the fil- filmography that we've naturally covered over the years here on Podcast on Fire. Uh, the next movie to, and the next gap to be plugged up. And I could have skipped it if I liked, but uh, I chose it because of the contrasts it uh, presents against the enigmatic case, and that is his comedy, Seven Years Itch, from 1987. And plot from Letterboxd goes as follows. An introverted businessman who doesn't get out much, called Willie M, played by Raymond Wong, recently uh, celebrated his 7th anniversary, but his marriage seems to be hitting a slump. His wife, played by Sylvia Chang, is a Cantonese opera aficionado who often complains that her husband is boring and doesn't appreciate the arts. Willie himself is also eager for some action, to, to break the monotony. Uh, when he goes to Singapore on a business trip, he encounters cute pickpocket Siu Hong, played by Nina Lee, at, at the airport, uh, triggering, triggering off a series of events that puts his marriage in jeopardy. And while it shares the title grammatically with the Billy Wilder comedy from 1955 starring Marilyn Monroe, 
it's not a remake reportedly but rather you know a comedic exploration of that phrase seven years itch uh, a saying used to describe when a marriage uh, or a relationship starts to fade i mean they do reference it with the famous uh, wind from beneath the gr- grill underground grill blowing up a, a western lady's skull and although in this case it's much more like a typhoon yeah exactly <laughs> so they get a look at the western lady but they're are you at all familiar with that comedy or it's been ages since you saw it if you even saw it uh billy wilder's film yes i've seen it but it's been so long i have very vague memories of it yeah. and uh, would you say that they, 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 this is not a remake of it uh, if you were to guess uh, i mean no not at all no so uh that, that's a sort of um recognizable factor i suppose they took from the film but it uh, goes its own uh, places and i read the plot synopsis of it the marilyn monroe film and it seemed like no no she wasn't a pickpocket i think she played like a model or something that would do a commercial and living next door to the character in that film so you know it uh, it did its thing uh, differently but that's the film where her skirt blows up so yeah that's the um uh, that, that's the cinematic image been uh, parodied uh, time and time again a reference time and time again uh, I mean isn't there a Gene Wilder film that that happens in like a w- woman in red or lady in red yes, or something like yeah. that yeah. so obviously it's uh, it's stuck with viewers and uh, filmmakers uh, including Hong Kong filmmakers so Johnny Toe makes his second film here and the first in seven years although he is listed as executive director on Happy Ghost 3 which also credits series star and producer Raymond Wong and Ringo Lam as directors. So, you know, he he was around, around Cinema City and around makers, but, uh, and maybe called some uh, action and cut on that one to a distinct degree, but his next official credit is this one. one. So, uh, and uh, he he and um, Raymond Wong, Johnny Toe and Raymond Wong team up for this Cinema City outing that uh, also stars Raymond Wong, who also wrote it and also produced it. Might as well have directed it because he's so so much in charge. But but hey, so re- really, it's, um, you you could argue all you want. I, I guess is uh, Johnny told your commercial gun for hire here, or is there a cinematic identity uh, brewing and being created before us that screams Johnny Toe? Spoilers, no, it screams Raymond Wong. Uh, but uh, whether that's a good or bad thing, we'll get to in a little little bit. Uh, Seven years itch made a little over eleven million dollars at the Hong Kong box office, which was sizably trailing that year's big hits, such as Armor of God at thirty-five million, An Autumn's Tale at at twenty-five, A Better Tomorrow Two made twenty-two million, uh, the Chinese New Year hit It's a Madman Mad World came in at twenty-seven million, and Ringo Lam's Prison on Fire challenged the Armor of God's reign at the box office with a healthy thirty-one million Hong Kong dollars. So. That's a, it's a performance, 11 versus uh, the top earners that were uh, doing over 30. So Cinema City had uh, box office hits because Prison of Fire, I believe, was a Cinema City uh, film, but uh, this uh, didn't measure up to it. So as for quick opinions, uh, I mean, um, from the director of the mission and election, we get gratuitous shots of bumps and cleavage. Yeah. That's that's your cinematic identity. So before Johnny Toe was Johnny Toe, there was, uh, among other things, a stint at uh, Cinema City in a flick that entirely feels like Raymond Wong's baby than anything else. Uh, uh, the expected complications using this uh, story, you know, uh, cheating, losing his marriage, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you have a great presence in the form of Eric Tsang as the brother-in-law. And I'm sorry to say, I like these movies, uh, these breezy movies, but there's precious little charming efforts from pretty much 
anyone here. Sylvia gets a pass, I think. I think uh, Seven Years Itch is business as usual without any long-lasting positives. I mean, the story moral is embedded in, in all of this. And again, Sylvia Chang is uh, welcome as a solid presence because she always is. But it really doesn't help the matters. A mild, breezy commercial entertainment is usually my happy place it's okay normally but i thought despite this being super short it's an 82 minute film i thought this was rather forgettable to be honest uh, as a johnny toe and raymond wong film but i know this is your happy place too so amongst all the movies of this kind fun the lucky night tycoon romancing star la la how does seven years itch play with you in terms of uh, is this a, a go-to movie to just watch and be and be happy doing so or is it a struggle for you as well no, this is a pretty bad one. It's, um, you know, and I say that as somebody who loves this genre. I love the romantic comedy genre, especially from this period of, you know, the the late 80s, early 90s. It's just not a, a good film um, and it doesn't hold up well. Um, the, the gags are nothing really new for the kind of adventures and fooling genre. There are things here that by today's standards are kind of offensive. We'll get in. We'll get into that a little bit. But. You have to understand, too, that this was a March release. So it's after the big Lunar New Year hits for the year. And, you know, it ran for, I want to say, about three weeks, which it, it's solid. But it also tells me that there probably wasn't a lot of competition at the time of other stuff crowding out the cinemas. So while it had a good run, it's it's filling that time period, which back then was traditionally sort of the gap, right? The gap between the big holiday Lunar New Year stuff, and then the summer blockbuster stuff would come later. You know, you typically have, and, and you used to have this in the States too, but things have kind of gotten shifted around now. Um, these windows have kind of closed their gap somewhat as stuff comes, and more stuff comes out that doesn't really want to compete head-to-head. But, you know, you have the the films that aren't expected to do quite as well, you know, in between the big release dates, the the big holidays, the big blockbuster periods. And and this prior period had had Armor of God and yeah. it's a Mad 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 World. So people had really um doing uh you know been doing their cinematic rounds uh, uh, just a few weeks prior, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean at this point in his career, um, as a leading man, uh, Raymond Wong was kind of you know at his peak. He was riding a high. He had some success with the Happy Ghost movies, and he has other films like this. Um, where he's kind of like the, the the romantic leading man. Um, Isle of Fantasy is one that comes to mind, and I think I like that one a lot more than this one. But again, these are not any great films. They're not super memorable films. You kind of come to them as comfort food, something you can kind of turn on the ba- in the background. And, you know, as a romantic comedy even, I mean, it's not, it's not even on par with stuff that... Um, you would find from other actors like, you know, Kenny B or Jackie Chung um, or even the bigger names, you know, of course, like Andy Lau and, and Tony Leung Chiwai, who are all operating in this period. You don't you don't go to Raymond Wong as a as a leading man. He is of value looking at Hong Kong cinema as a producer, of course. Uh, but I was never convinced of his chops as a leading man. Uh, with Happy Ghost, I think he found his... Um, happy medium i suppose that that's a role he can inhabit to a decent degree i, I mean I, I like those but uh, are they comedy family classics depends on yeah i mean they have sequences but they're not usually thanks to him 
So some of the movies have some special effects that are very cool. Either animation or miniatures, and uh, you got some um, some of the talent pool within uh, what's it, Cinema City that produced Happy Ghost? It, it must have been right. So it's that I remember, not fucking Raymond Wong. <laughs> <laughs> so so, and, and I'm not suggesting he's a sleazeball or anything, but uh, you know, being a writer and producer, you, I'm, I suppose you can cost yourself one, but you can also pair yourself up with the likes of Sylvia Chang, with the likes of Cherry Chung, because he made a movie call, and I think he directed it too, Goodbye Darling. That, that might have been good, it's been so long, it might have been actually decent, but it reeks a little of the, these pairings, like uh, and, and obviously he pairs himself up with Nina Lichi here. So it's a bit like, who's the producer? Who's the boss? If I write it, it will be so. It's good to be the king. Yeah. And um, so, so, but, but I'm not suggesting Raymond as, you know, has acted inappropriately or anything. It's just, uh, he, he he's in that position, but he's not anyone's idea of a hunk or a comedic force, is my opinion. And and to be fair, I mean, if if you look at the scope of adventures and fooling kind of movies, I mean, you have Raymond Wong producing stuff like this on occasion, and he's a powerful force for you know just producing so many movies over the years, including a lot of New Year Lunar New Year comedies, which are hit and miss, you know. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've also got Wong Jing, who is very famous for the adventures and fooling kind of you know films. And has at times put himself into the films. I can't think of anywhere he's a leading man per se, but you know he's 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 put himself uh, out there, usually often to be the butt of jokes. And so I think that you know Raymond too, he he, he knows that usually he's going to put himself in a movie as a, a a comedy bit, but there's this period here where he's also kind of expected to be the leading man bit which doesn't always work you know and i think it works better when he's doing lunar new year films where he's an ensemble character you know he's like the the older brother and you've got him playing off people like leslie chung and and other people in the family and he and he tends to work better in that or as he got older he would you know do these cameo roles where he wasn't sort of the central figure i don't know if it's a case of he was taking on more than he could chew i just think it was he was popular there was an opportunity and and he took it. And one thing he's proven is he's very savvy as a business person. He's been in the industry for so long, you know, producing films. And he was a big part of the forming of Cinema City. So, you know, I think he saw an opportunity to do these kinds of things and he, he took a shot. And Mandarin Films was him as well, right? Because I, I, I remember him being a, like a producer on yeah. those Bright with White Hair, Phantom Lover and things like that. I think uh, Mandarin Films was uh, Raymond. But, uh, but regardless... Uh, the, it's it's unusually short though, as we discussed beforehand. Uh, it's an 82-minute film, which which is uh, very un very unusual to be honest. Uh, the, the the standard was 90 95 minutes. So even as a producer, writer, and star, he's making a less movie with himself here uh, and not uh, more. For for people who are listening who may not be familiar, thinking, well, okay, so it's it's eight minutes shorter, which in script terms is technically eight pages. And you may say, well, why is that a big deal? Cinema City was famous because they kind of rewrote the the way film, they, they rewrote the production rules of the way films were made. And they actually would have films plotted out kind of like on a color chart by reel because every reel was like 10 minutes or so. And they would have, okay, action sequence, slapstick, gag, 
you know, so many per reel. So it was almost very formulaic that these films would often work out to around 90 minutes. So it is kind of surprising to see this one kind of break from the formula a little bit during this period. And it makes me wonder if maybe there was more in there that got cut for some reason because it couldn't be used or, you know, something happened to make it so much shorter than was the average for this era maybe a longer um uh, bums and the cleavage montage that we get here because uh, that's how the movie starts uh, aside from uh, from the skirt blowing up uh, you know to- seven years each we remember that film and uh johnny toe is setting up if we're gonna speak from his perspective as the director here that uh, all men are of course sort of mesmerized by any flesh here even backflash. At one point, I think Raymond Wong is oogling like a lady's very, very conservative uh, dress, but uh, she's shown a little back in the office, and he's he's like, going, uh? and so they're all sex starved apparently. So there's a gag. I think he's on the street, and it's like this wide open back thing that he's following. You know, the camera's following this lady, and it turns out, and then, then the guy turns, and he's got a mustache. You know, it's just wah, a long haired guy, and that's again a very common trope. I think. Uh, the film uh, uh, Tony Lung Chui's film My Lucky Star does it, except they use the celebrity feng shui master, Master So, who's got like a really long hair ponytail. Right. And they do that same gag. They just do it with him. Yeah, it's so. years later. So Yeah, it's years later. <laughs> still audience-friendly entertainment. So, so yeah, so all men are sex starred, apparently. Uh, there's uh, banter in the office. And, of course, off-to-work occasions at Gentleman's uh, Club, because uh, that's a work day. <laughs> you 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 do your work and then you go with your perceived buddies uh, to uh, to drink with hostesses and play drinking games and uh, and they all rib each other. I I didn't like this humor at all. It was just kind of lame. They all rib each other because uh, they favor cheating. Most of them like uh, and if you're not cheating, you're either. I mean, they say disabled in the in the subtitles. I think they're, uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, the meaning is that you're either impotent or gay. If you're not cheating, so okay, nice. So 1980s, and then you have Eric Sang being Eric Sang here, very much uh, not sounding like him, but for once, I don't know how he missed it. He always dubbed himself, but he he's not dubbing himself this one and in this one, and he's the very much uh, outgoing brother-in-law versus Raymond Wong's more buttoned-up, tight, tightly knit sort of um, husband and uh, it's one of those cases where if we exclude the Eric Sang's uh, allegations in real life portion of this discussion and think of how he works as a comedy actor this is one of the cases where you just wish he would shut up <laughs> and it's sort of one note as well uh, so he, he's not this uh, f- fun sort of uh, comedic flair to have next to Raymond Wong's buttoned up uh, character and pushover to a degree as well and I, I think he lends money to his uh, brother-in-law like continually so and he's not advancing at uh, his uh, profession so um but, but neither of that felt like fun shameless fun uh, s- sections uh, here and uh and, you know it transfers to sylvia of course who hangs up with her girlfriends and uh, there's a discussion from their perspective as well how the her marriage isn't uh, progressing and uh, that uh, now seven years in there is uh, there is some things that need to be discussed and uh, but in terms of a couple, as much as I love her, you 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 never become involved in their their sort of critical crossroads and their conflict, of course. Uh, nor is the banter between them or anyone really funny. 
her uh, or his mother-in-law is pressuring him of course and uh, but but I, I could I could find a, a few seconds here or there of easygoing banter between husband and wife yes but m- most of the banter and issues combined like forgetting her birthday and things like that it um, it, it never really was engaging and uh, it was not a pairing that um, worked out she she's lovely per default but she really can't bring out any anything new or charming out of Raymond Wong being paired up with him you know yeah I didn't feel a lot of if any chemistry really between them as a couple and you really got to go back and compare with for example her role in films like uh, Aces Go Places with uh, Karl Maka and how the two the chemistry between the two of them as a couple over the series of films really works well and in here you don't get really any of that you do get her and she's fine and 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 she's charming and and to his defense Raymond Wong I mean he can be funny and he has a presence too but by the end of this and and you kind of figure out if you understand the formula for these comedy films how it's going to end I, I it just left me questioning why are they even together because it seems like they don't really like each other there's no common interests they're just together because that's what the story has them, you know, being set as that, that part just really didn't work for me. But I think that the, the rest of it, I mean, it's just the typical kind of adventures and foolings gags, even though Raymond Wong himself is kind of like this guy who's just kind of caught up in events. He doesn't really want to go fooling. He's kind of like, you know, drug along and you've got Eric Zhang as kind of the bad brother-in-law who, is kind of kind of responsible for a lot of the trouble that he ends up getting into and then you've got the the club scenes which are interesting because that is such a cultural thing to hong kong you know it's 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 very it's very culturally unique to hong kong in this time period those clubs are gone you know these days they don't exist anymore really that the whole hostess thing and it was such a staple of of this period of hong kong that it's interesting to go back and kind of watch films like this and and you get um one of the things that caught my eye was that you uh, have uh, people like kingdom yun this is her debut film you know as a hostess girl comedian kingdom yun you know it's like so we have these two films you know the last one was the debut of sherry chung and this one is the debut of uh, kingdom yun and just a very you know small kind of throwaway role but still it's nice to see Actors, you know, and recognize getting their start here and, you know, and, and doing stuff and, and showing, you know, some some pretty interesting chops early on, even though it's a very small role. Um, and you get others like Wu Feng, who shows up uh, kind of in the third act and is just, you know, doing his Wu Feng kind of charming self uh, as, as kind of a foil. And, you know, lots of lots of people in between. But the parts are kind of bigger than the whole as it as it were and it sounds so audience friendly when you describe it and but it really doesn't click uh with you uh, as a matter of fact i mean even shameless stuff like you know featuring nina lee and her assets because they always do because they're there and at one point, uh, an orangutan smacks her bottom, and uh, she thinks it's Raymond. So, wah, wah, wah. but that—that that isn't even funny. Like contrast that with the fun luck in the tycoon that Johnny Toe directed, and how they feature Nina Lee. They—they they do the same. There, there's uh, several jokes about her ample bosom, but it's w- way more fun. It just yeah. uh, sort of clicks more as uh, shameless, audience-friendly entertainment, uh, and uh, and all of that. And uh, and even with that being kind of a a much more 
how would you say, carbon copy remake of a film than this, which is, you know, kind of a carbon copy in name only. You know, so even if you watch that film and you say, oh, I've seen I've seen this story with Eddie Murphy, but there's so much more going on there and it's so much more entertaining and the chemistry is elevated so much that um, I think that one has a lot of rewatch value for me as opposed to this one. Maybe we should have had a seven years itch starring Chai Fat and Sylvia Chang instead. Because uh, they, 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 they prove and they have chemistry on screen, including in Tycoon and obviously all about that long too. So Yeah, but don't watch that. That's so sad. <laughs> it's a bit of a sad movie. You know, in concept, I think it's it's it Raymond positions himself well as this uh, character who as you said who, who who doesn't set out to to do fooling or tomfoolery and uh, he's he is a pushover he can be easily manipulated and he is uh, by nina lee and uh, and uh, but he enjoys getting on with someone you know and uh, he even uh, goes as far as eating um or ingesting a a potion of sorts to become more uh, virile and uh, like medical oil and pepper powder and then meditating because uh, one of his friends told him to do so so that's kind of half half amusing because he is kind of awkward doing all of that um some snickers here and there but uh, but yeah there's no particular fun comedic persona coming out of that scene seeing uh, Raymond free for instance unravel as his wife is desired by someone else uh, you know the Wu Fung Part. Now he's fearing a fling and he's uh, being reactionary, reactionary. he's uh, sulky and he clenches up in terms of his personality and that's a, like a mildly amusing image because he, Raymond at the very least is not portraying himself as a sexual dynamo. You know, so he, he, uh, he, he knows he can't uh, change his cinematic image just because he writes that he's uh, you know, Tom Cruise. Uh, so at the very least uh, that's... Uh, is uh he's uh adjusted his uh abilities to this cinematic image but still there's no threat of this uh, becoming funny and for instance classic slap slapstick stuff like uh lena lee is uh, forced to hide uh, in a closet while sylvia chang is coming into the hotel room and there's some really dumb shit here of holding yeah. a suit in front of sylvia that was chang. so lazy it just felt so lazy you know it's like you, you and you've seen you've seen that kind of sequence before you know where somebody's in the room that's not supposed to be and they got to shift around and yeah, yeah you just look at like shanghai blues or peking yeah. opera blues uh, for, for a maker who knows how to do the hide in the closet hide under the covers comedy and again yeah johnny toe can't elevate the diver with his filmmaking experience but working from raymond wong's uh <laughs> script and direction but i thought it was so uninspired like cover sylvia chang's eyes with the suits so nina lichi can sneak out of the room like what a dumb idea and it's not dumb funny it's just um pretty limp and lame and 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 I, I kind of wish that there would have been an enjoyment in the breezy from this period because I can very much get on with even mildly funny stuff, but they just really never approached that either. You know, you, you have all these known and iconic actors from the time coming and going, doing little cameos, and that, that was enjoyment in itself. But uh, obviously uh, for, for this one, it's all sort of surface level enjoyment when you start to list all people who are in it and what they do they go in, go into clubs as you described but it's uh, it never really reaches any engaging level even mightily engaging level is it's far off the mark yeah. 
for for that one it gets a pass sort of thanks to the short running time because it you're into it quick you're out of it quick but it's also out of your consciousness really i think quick and uh, not even a late breaking cameo can make you go ooh. You know, <laughs> I, I had no memory of the late-breaking cameo, and I have no care in the world if you spoil who appears right at the end, so just go ahead and tell people who appears at the end. The the very famous Maggie Chung, in an early appearance, uh, runs through as a casual jogger through a park to catch the eye of Raymond Wong, and then you get a public service announcement. <laughs> That's the end freeze frame, which is kind of great. It's kind of kind of makes the whole movie worth watching, almost. What did it say about if you if you have the screen grab in front of you? So. Oh wow, gosh, I don't have it. it. It says something to the end of like, okay, women, you know, every man is gonna fool around, so be careful or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, R- Raymond Wong is informing informing society. So who knew? He had, yeah, he had it in him. <laughs> the the one thing I will say in this movie's defense, and especially in defense of of Nina Lee, um, aka Mrs. Jet Lee, who, who would meet her husband two years later. Um, her future husband that is as and we've talked about her before in in other stuff we've covered and again she's often used as the butt of jokes in films that um, she is in because of her assets but one of the things i really like that they did with her here is because they kind of positioned her as this kind of femme fatale and she's got an agenda but at the end of the day she was a person with a heart and she was really nice so she kind of broke the typical stereotype that you'd find and and she really was she didn't want to be a homewrecker you know she was just trying to protect her own skin because of certain events going on in the film and so she kind of comes back at the end and i mean i mean i know it's kind of unrealistic and it plays into the the typical kind of happy ending that they have to build in these films but i liked that they kind of went against the grain with her character and she kind of came back and, and and helped to fix things a little bit. So I found that a little bit char- charming. The other thing I will say, too, is that anybody who's done any travel in Asia, there's there's a scene in the third act where the uh, Wu Feng character, whose name's Money Chin, which I think is a great name, he's trying to woo uh, Sylvia Chang, and they're in Singapore, and uh, he's he's taking her out to dinner, and then Wayman Wong is trying to stop them. And so he gets this plan to get uh, Eric Tsang to come help him. Now, Eric Tsang's character is back in Hong Kong. Okay. And he's like, I don't care what you got to do. Get here to Singapore and, and, and help me. And this is as they're, the Wu Feng character is, is leaving to take Sylvia out to dinner. And so Eric's like, okay, but you got to pay my ticket first class. And, 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 and so all that's fine. And then, you know, he shows up. Now, anybody who's traveled from Hong Kong, Singapore knows it's like three hour journey. <laughs> so that was either a really long dinner or he somehow got on the Concorde <laughs> and made it there in record time. So there are some things in this movie that makes you kind of scratch your head and go, wait, what? But again, it's such a forgettable thing that you kind of even forget that they're in Singapore. It doesn't really matter at that point because the, you know, the setting is is not that relevant to the overall plot of what's going on. So. And and I got a little chuckle out of the fact when they're um, they're, they're role playing together. Raymond Wong tries to recreate the fling that he had with Nina Lichi, but with his wife, and she dresses in red as well, not as as uh, as uh, sexy as Nina Lee. It more suits Sylvia, and they're, they're trying to uh, recreate that for whatever reason. I don't know. But uh, when she sits down with Wu Feng, she introduces herself as "Hi, I'm Sylvia Chang." <laughs> that you are. Uh, so that was a little like, hey. 
I know where that came from. Uh, she can do no wrong, but um, this is not the movie to look for uh, her sort of comedic chops. Ace has got plays a series, Fun Luck and Taiku. Good stuff if you want to see uh, Sylvia in uh, light-hearted stuff, indeed. So, I am... It's out of my consciousness quick, so that's uh, all I got to say. So, anything else you want to mention from the film? Yeah, I will say that uh, if you are going to sit down and watch this, be prepared because it does not age well. Um, there's a there is a thing that happens at the end. You know, basically, I'll say it, that the, the Raymond's father-in-law um, decides to get a bit of a backbone and... Uh, you know, stand up to his uh, very domineering wife, Raymond's mother-in-law. And it's it's just a thing that I guess at the time was funny. And because, you know, the idea of a henpecked husband, you know, is is a very kind of standard character trope in in a lot of Hong Kong cinema. But the way it's advocated and, and, and it's almost like another public service announcement because he's like explaining to this police officer, he's like, you know, oh, why is your why is your wife like this? And he's like, well, this is what you got to do. And I'm like, oh. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, something that played well in the 80s is not going to play well today, not going to hold up well. So be prepared for that. But, uh, you know, again, this is something that uh, if you can get access to it, it's, you know, I know it's availability is sparse. You'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not something you really want to spend a lot of money for. And it does Johnny Toe's comedic works, uh, late, uh, early 90s, moving forward, I, I guess... Uh, I, I could never found like a, a defining um, touch of his, but certainly when he worked with performers of note, performers with chops and uh, were a comedic force like a Stephen Chow and then combined that with Anita Moy, then no wonder his movies, his comedy movies felt better by that point. Uh, and, uh, you know, he made his comedic films at the Milky Way and they were kind of broad and they were uh, audience-friendly, Fat Choice Spirit, Needing You and so forth. But in all honesty, there's nothing really here where you can draw a line to how he would navigate comedy in his Milky Way image days, right? Uh, even those comedy movies were kind of him starting anew. And so there's no straight line to draw from seven years each in, in terms of Johnny Toe's development. Or what do you think? I mean, I don't really see it. Again, it's hard to, as we talked about with the last film, it's hard to really say how much influence he had, especially with, you know, somebody like Raymond Wong on the film as producer and writer as well. If he was just coming in and saying, you know, action and, and that was and cut and that was basically it. Um, he he may have had some influence. It's hard to say, but uh, I it's. I see a lot more of Raymond Wongness here and in later Raymond Wong films than I do of, of Johnny Toe per se. Now, you know, that being said, I do think that there were things probably that he learned uh, working with actors here and in how to use them, like especially Sylvia, um, who he'd use again later, being able to uh, get um, certain character traits out of them and, and, and stuff like that. You know, he would uh, he would use um you know, her very effectively in the fun, the luck and the, the tycoon. And and it also matters when you add um, a greater cost of greater abilities to a movie. Like look at a movie like Eighth Happiness, which granted I believe is a Chinese New Year film. But you got all those uh, guys and gals in there, including Raymond Wong, I believe. And it's way much more enjoyable because uh, you you got such a smorgasbord of, uh, of actors uh, of, of the reservation, mostly Chai in fact. And it works so much better. And here you're kind of reliant on a very limited 
limited pool of of uh, of tomfoolery, I suppose, and it certainly doesn't work very well. With, and I know if happiness that won't contain a lot of like, oh yeah, Johnny Toe starts here, but it it just works out a bit more when adding a greater ensemble, both in volume and skills. And therefore, you have a much more enjoyable time with uh, with a movie like *If Happiness*. *If Happiness* is one of my favorite vintage Chinese New Year films in in that regard. Yeah, indeed. And again, I think if you, especially if you look in some of Johnny Toe's later stuff, where the comedy really starts to shine, um, it, it tends to be in his pairings with Y Kafai. And for me, that's again, it's hard to say. You know what is coming from who, but it always seemed to me like why Kafai had a better angle on the comedy bits going forward. Um, and I could be completely off in that, but again, this is just based on comparisons between the stuff they've done individually as directors, the stuff they've done in pairs, and then the stuff that like Johnny Toe has done kind of on his own, especially, the, you know, the earlier stuff that you look at in his filmography, like, like you said, um, where you're looking at things like Justice My Foot. Again, he's working with somebody like Stephen Chow. How much of that was coming from Chow? How much was coming from director Johnny Toe? It's hard to say. Indeed, but they are better, at the very least, um, than this uh, early excursion. So, uh, uh, okay, as for availability of uh, Seven Years Itch, uh, the Joy Sales DVD is no longer in print, and I couldn't find any immediate second-hand sources of it either. So uh, it's a little bit harder to get. Uh, but um, still, uh, I wanted it to be part of the coverage. And who knows, it might uh, get a reissue uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, it, it might simply get a reissue and it's out there in HD in some shape or form already. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, the main uh, DVD version. If you, uh, you want to look for it and if you find something that's reasonably priced, it's very much uh, watchable. So uh, thanks to Paul for providing it uh, for the show. Only had a, an old uh, cropped uh, VHS version of it, so um, this uh, was a little bit better. Uh, okay, okay, we have plans for to continue plugging up gaps of filmmakers and actors, um, so we we can be here for many more episodes um, with that focus. So, but um, so there, there's no immediate plan to just focus on a couple of directors and a couple of actors um well i have a wide list and uh currently that we've gone through like a uh, couple of the early john woo films couple of um well one one early Troy hark film and uh, here we are with uh two early johnny toe films and uh, having to work so some early summer home stuff so you know as director so uh, we're going through uh we're going through a little phase currently on that uh, on that note but it's always uh, important to renew your enthusiasm for what you're doing so uh, that angle is uh, my my part of uh, that akin to that uh, so it's uh, it's all good fun and uh, hope you like it ho- liked it and hope you like the upcoming uh, coverage but uh, in the meantime we're closing uh, we're closing the, the lid on uh, these uh, two Johnny Toe movies uh, the enigmatic case and seven years itch and uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs including the back catalog of podcast on fire and all our other shows uh, go to podcastonfire.com social media links are available on the site and in the show post and uh, subscribe to us on uh, apple podcasts Stream us on Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and uh, wherever you find podcasts, you will in all likelihood find us. That's us. So um, 
Thank you to Paul for participating and adding uh, adding a valuable context, even a valuable Raymond Wong context. Uh, as much as we sort of semi don't like him, it's still valuable context uh, to to place him uh, to place him uh, in Hong Kong cinema. What he uh, what the pros and cons were when it came to the the art that uh, Raymond Wong created. So, um, but yeah, this is uh, is not it. To, uh, this is not the reference point, but, uh, but hey, it was a good examination. So thank you very much for taking part, buddy. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I always learn something when we do these together. And uh, you know, if you're out there listening, do please hit up uh, you know some social media, either the podcast on fire Twitter page or the Facebook page, and let us know if you've seen these films, what you thought of them, because I'm always anxious to hear thoughts on these things from uh, other people as well. Indeed, and. Uh... Uh, and, and a final plug, of course, I could have mentioned it uh, at the top of the show, but uh, at the time of recording, we have a couple of uh, audio commentaries out on 88 films. Me and Phil Gillen have uh, done one of the audio, audio commentaries on Armor of God. Uh, we just had, at the time of recording, uh, a US and UK uh, simultaneous release of Monkey Kung Fu, not to be confused, confused with Mad Monkey Kung Fu. This is a smaller Shaw Brothers film starring Xing Zedong director of uh, future director of uh, duel to the death and a chinese ghost story and a very fun little uh, kung fu uh, comedy and by the time you hear this uh, unless it's been delayed but it is official now we also have done the uh, audio commentary for the sun chung horror kung fu hybrid human lanterns uh, so that that's also going out to the u.s and the uk so uh, unless that faces delays uh, it could be out at the time uh, you're hearing this uh, but uh, the specs are not um, secret or anything so um, I hope you like it so then, then that's what me and Phil Gillen are doing uh, intermittently here in between podcast work and so forth so that's been uh, fun and challenging so um, but anyway let's uh, conclude this one and uh, I've been Kennedy and with me was Paul Fox so uh, take us out buddy say bye bye bye